Hello, this is producer Pete, welcoming you to our second special programme about the faces of war. Now, it's challenging enough being a woman in any largely male-dominated arena, but when that arena happens to be a theatre of war, and when the men concerned are mostly trying to kill each other, then you've got a rather unique set of challenges. Well, our guest tonight, Lindsay Hilsom, has been there and done that for a couple of decades. You've seen her face often enough on television. Well, tonight, let's meet the person under the skin. Live and uncensored. Uncensored. And let's think about Syria. Nine million people have left their homes. That's the equivalent, to put it in terms uh, my people would understand, uh, that's like the entire population of Los Angeles County, upping sticks and being force-marched into Nevada, which is another dry desert landscape where nothing grows, only Syria has culture. Now uh, give the LAPD some shoulder-fired missiles, unleash the National Guard, and let them fight it out with the Crips, the Bloods, MS-13, and a hundred other street gangs over who gets to feed the people and win their hearts and minds. Now, if that scenario were to happen, I can pretty much guarantee you that Lindsay Hilson would be there to cover it. Intelligent listening for dangerous minds. This is Latopia. This is Latopia After Dark. After Dark. After Dark. The situation in Syria, it seems like, from the outside, just an unending series of battles and street fighting and, and gang warfare and and uh, no clear winners, no good guys, no bad guys. But what myself and people like Asma want to know is, where do you get your fabulous scarves? <laughs> I get my scarves everywhere I go. And so I get them in markets or I get them in shops or I get them in airports and they cheer me up no end. So there's no, like, because Jon Snow, the yeah, he has Lead ties. Agerman. He's got his tie, but he's got his specific tie. Well, Pete, a lot of viewers send him ties. And there was a time when his when his daughters, I remember, were teenagers, they used to kind of make ties for him and so on. But my scarves, I get them everywhere. And the thing about a scarf, which is, there's a number of things about a scarf, which I can tell you. One is Write that this down, however this. hot and sweaty and muddy you are, if you've got a scarf, somehow that means that you, you kind of look all right. And the other thing is that if you break your arm, you can use it as a sling. Um, if you fracture your wrist, you can use it as a bandage. Um, I suppose if you met somebody you really, really hated as an interviewee, you could use it as a gag, though I haven't actually ever had to right, do that. Right, right. Um, so if, if you're being kidnapped, you say, no, 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 I've got my own blindfold. Yeah, yeah, you could take your own blindfold. And if and if you're trapped somewhere on a desert island, you can wave yeah, it. Yeah, you to can a, wave it. Tra- so yeah. many uses. For so the, many, so many uses. Okay, but whenever it, whenever it kicks off in the Middle East, uh, my wife and I will be sitting on the couch watching Channel 4 News, and, you know, she'll be pottering in the kitchen or whatever and look over, and there's Lindsay wearing the scarf tastefully over your head. And she goes, ah, oh, where have they sent her now? <laughs> Do you wear it when you go to the Middle East as a sign of respect for the culture or is it camouflage? Well, it depends. Look, I wear a scarf always around my neck. Um, oh, for, just the, for, because, the, for the reasons. For the reasons yeah. outlined above. In the Middle East, okay, if I go to Iran, um, women by law have to wear a headscarf. So I have no choice. So since I have no choice, I might as well enjoy it. 
Okay. So I might as make well the wear, make the most of it. I have to wear a headscarf, so let's wear a headscarf that I like. So let's wear ones where, where the colours pick out what I'm wearing, and I generally, <laughs> you know, enjoy it. And um, you know, you, why look like a dog if you don't have to? And so that's what I do there. Now, in other situations, in most other countries in the Middle East, you don't have to wear a headscarf, but sometimes. Sometimes it is respectful and it helps. Um, obviously, if you're going into a mosque, I always wear a headscarf. Um, and then there are other situations where it just kind of feels right. Actually, one of my favourite looks, which I use quite a lot in Iraq, is the flak jack and headscarf. Oh, really? That, that's, uh, that, I think, is quite good. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's a pragmatic I like to, I thing. I like to go with like a tuxedo top and like, you know, some camo trousers. So maybe Yeah, that, it's a similar sort of thing. Yeah. Similar sort of thing. Um, anyway, so I just wear it when when it feels when it feels right. Well, you and I both live in uh, well, east. You're in sort of northeast. I live in East London. Uh, my neighborhood is forty percent Bengali Muslim, and today, for instance, it's you know for London is a reasonably warm day, and there are you see the women wearing mm. full niqab, yeah. with just the eye slits, and they're walking down the street. And you're thinking that cannot be comfortable, and next to them. Their husband, dude is just tricked out in tracksuit bottoms and a t-shirt. And I look over at the Middle East and, you know, you're obviously, you're going over there showing respect and also camouflaging yourself and not breaking the law. And, and I wonder the way, with laws like that and the way women are treated across the Arab world, is that not... I don't know, a humanitarian crisis in its own right. I live in Stamford Hill with the ultra-Orthodox Jews. So what we have there is... That's part of the Middle East. Yeah, that's part of the Middle East. And you have the women who shave their heads and they wear wigs and they wear long skirts all below the knee and tights. And the men all wear these incredible furry hats. Yes. And, you know, the long tassels, all the rest of it. And the kids... All through, you know, all through the summer, I look at these kids and the little girls have got the white woolly tights and the long skirts and so on. And the little boys have got the hats and the ringlets and the and the long jackets and so on. And I just long to put them in, in shorts and a T-shirt. But I think that the point that I'm making is that it's not just Islam, which has dress codes which are alien to us and which look very uncomfortable. Um, it's all sorts of, of different religions. Okay, but yeah. the, the Orthodox Jewish population is minuscule it's as small. compared to... It's big in my life. It's big in your because life. Because down it? my street, it's all journalists or ultra-Orthodox. Oh, really? Yes. Is, is there any crossover? What's the Venn diagram? <laughs> yeah, no, the Venn diagram is we, we kind of smile at each other and so on, but... Uh, well, in the States, there's actually more Mormons than there are. Yeah, than there exactly. Are and, that, and there you so. are, you have a lot of... And they dress occasionally rather um, silly. Yeah. But I, no, I, but I understand I understand your point. You're talking about the... I'm the, talking about the, the way women are treated, treated and the scarves in the Middle are sort of... And the niqab yeah, are yeah, I, know, I understand. Okay. And it's an interesting thing because it's also something which has changed certainly in my lifetime is that I remember a friend, uh, sadly no longer with us, talking about being brought up in southern Lebanon in the 60s and how his aunt and mother, they never wore headscarves. Um, because in those days, those were the days of pan-Arabism and, and so on, and and Saudi was much more Western. But it's changed. It's changed every time. And so well, in Iran, now, after the revolution, suddenly, boom. Yeah, everybody had to. But then you look at a country like Egypt. Um, now, you you know, it's a very small minority of women who don't wear the headscarf in Egypt. Um, whereas 
before when I first started going to Egypt, which is like twenty twenty five years ago, lots of lots of women didn't wear it. So much more cosmopolitan. It, yeah, it was, but it was just. It, if I say it's fashion, then that sounds shallow. I don't mean it in a shallow way. What I mean is that there has been a huge upsurge in um, this more orthodox Islam over the last 20, 25 years. We're literally talking about the fashion police here. Yeah, we are. Absolutely. And to some extent, um, you know, so is this an oppression of women? Well, I think that anything is an oppression of women that says you must do this because you are a woman. However, I have to say that I do meet lots of um, women who don't look at it like that. I've just come back from Damascus. I was working with a wonderful woman, um, old woman in her late 40s, um, married to a European, but she's Syrian herself. Um, she's headscarfed. I asked her about it. She said, well, I didn't wear it till five years ago. She said, no, I, you know, I looked like you. Um, but Who needs I, the hassle? But she said, no, she said, I became more religious as, I, as I've grown older. I've become more religious. She said, my, my, so I said, I thought about it a lot, and I asked my daughters what did they think, and they said, you know, mum, do whatever you want. And she felt that that was what she wanted to do as a Muslim. She asked her husband, and it's, it's interesting because it's, it's like the other way around. She said, Will it annoy you if I wear his headscarf? And he said, well, you can do whatever you want, you know, it's up to you. So, you know, you, you can't make the assumption no, that but women are being forced to do things. No, but some for, are, some it's just following the way of the family, others choose to do so. But when you have laws like, when you have laws like, like Purda, for instance, where... Sure, in which you get in Pakistan and Afghanistan, yeah, of course. I but I, I mean, also, also in Egypt, you know, yeah. last, I was, last I was in Egypt, uh, you know, I'm a marine biologist by training, so obviously there's, there's good reason for me being here. Um, we went to uh, we went to Sharm, near Sharm el Sheikh, mm. and there were no women serving us. Not in the hotels. They weren't yeah. cleaning. They weren't in the restaurants. They weren't even. They weren't yeah. janitors. There was no nobody in the front desk. And you're like, where are they? Well, yeah. they're they're inside. Yeah, yeah. they're not That's allowed good. to interact. And yeah. the men are, you know, this, Egypt was recently voted by some, or I don't know, mm. said by uh, some poll or whatnot that it's the worst country to be a woman. I think Egypt's pretty grim. Behind think, even mm. Saudi Arabia. Yeah, no, I think Egypt is pretty awful. And that's partly because there's this huge upsurge of violence against women in Egypt, which I don't think we fully understood. I certainly haven't fully understood it. And we saw it, you know, with these this sexual harassment and, and rape that went on in Tahrir Square in the crowd situations. When you were there in Tahrir Square, did you feel... No, I, I mean, I wasn't, I was there in 2011, you know, during the revolution, and it was in a sense before we became very conscious of, of this. And I have to say that I didn't feel um, vulnerable, but I, except in the, in the general way of feeling vulnerable in a crowd, you know, I, crowds are always dangerous things. And as a foreigner in a crowd, I'm always aware that, you know, one minute everybody's happy and friendly and they love you, and then it only Sorry. takes one asshole. And then, you know, to shout, she's a spy or something, and that's the kind of thing. In fact, we did have a situation, I'll tell you in a minute about that, um, you know, for the whole mood to to change. So I didn't actually feel um, at all threatened as a, as a woman in, in Tahrir Square. I was aware that, that moods can change. And then later on, you know, some female journalists were attacked and we became uh, much more aware of it. And yeah, then we became sure. aware that it wasn't just female journalists, foreigners, um, who were suffering this, that it was um, Egyptian women, and it, it was, and it became very, very dangerous for, for Egyptian women to, to be there. And there's there. more reporting on that now. Well, yeah, no, I think Egypt's, uh, 
it is pretty pretty grim. And I think that in all those situations, there was always a, a sort of volatility in the crowd in Egypt, which I felt far more than I have in, in most places. I mean, the incident I was going to tell you about was in Alexandria, in fact. And this, again, wasn't about being a woman. We were... This was quite near the beginning of the revolution in 2011 and we were driving and we drove past the police station and there were a whole load of people who were gathered there. Apparently their sons had disappeared or they didn't know where they were and and they were going to, you know, they were trying to find out where they were. So we took a picture, uh, we were filming from the car and so the cameraman was in the front and they saw us and suddenly they didn't like it. They turned against us. And... They crowded around the car, the people, and they were trying. I mean, they were sort of rocking the car, and then the driver's door was open. God, it's like after a football match. Yeah, no, it was a bit like that. It was very scary, actually. And I was in the back, and it had one of those, um, you know, those sort of old-fashioned pop-up locks. And so I put my hand over the lock, and they were the hands were coming round to try and force my hand up. So I then put my other hand. I luckily I had quite long nails, so I dug my nails in to stop them opening the door and there was lots of screaming and then eventually eventually we were arrested and I have to tell you I've never been so happy to be arrested in my whole oh, life. Oh really? Because they I was you so relieved to be arrested. So the police came and they said, Right, we arrest these terrible people and so and they put us in and then they basically saved us by arresting and us. And then what? They let you go. And they said wait half an hour and um, and then we'll let you out at the back. Just wait half an hour. And uh, we later on learnt that on the television, it was really interesting on the television that the previous night and this was still under Mubarak. It was before Mubarak fell. Um, they had put out a thing saying that foreign uh, the Israeli spies were posing as foreign journalists. So uh, if you saw a foreign journalist, they might well be an Israeli spy. Are, are you a spy, Lindsay? I am not a spy. Oh not for anybody. I very carefully plotted murder for several months. I decided that I was gonna I was gonna kill him and had it very well, I thought, laid out. But there's always that X factor that you never take into account. I don't think that there's a jury in this country that would have convicted me of murder. This is Litopia, After Dark, the Net's first and foremost literary salon. Well, let's back it up just to talk about how uh, you were working as for UNICEF and mm-hmm. I mean all the way back to uh, uh, Rwanda you were the only western or, or foreign English speaking journalist yeah. in Kigali in April of 1994 exactly when it, 20 years ago when it kicked today. off um, that must have been just incredibly traumatic you went to the 10th anniversary yeah I was I mean I the, I was there as you say in 20 years ago when the genocide started. And I, I, I went back quite quite often for the first 10 years, and then I didn't go back again until last year. I went back last year for the first time in 10 years. So how was that? It wasn't actually as upsetting as I was expecting it to be, but I, it's still... It's hard, you know, because you go, you go... Rwanda is a very beautiful country, and, you know, you look around at all these beautiful green hills and banana groves and so on, and... I look at it and all I can think is that it's full of killers and men with the machetes and clubs studded with nails. And well, so now, I, I mean, find it very hard to see the beauty. The tourist trade there now is, the, they call it the two Gs. You know, yeah. you go to see the genocide, the gorillas. Uh, the gorillas, that's right, yes. Now, I find that all quite uh, 
quite hard to get my head around. I think I would have a hard time focusing on one after seeing the other. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I do, I do find it, uh, it is, it is difficult. So, was there, was there uh, a particular, particular moment in your life that you said, you know, I want to, I want to do broadcast journalism or just journalism in general? Yeah, I decided I wanted to be. I was, in fact, an aid worker before, back in the seventies, in the late seventies. I am very old. Um, actually, oh, you don't look it. No, behave. I, no, actually, it's not that I'm very old. It's that I was incredibly precocious. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was. My wife likes to say she's thirty with twenty years' experience. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, so I was. Um, I worked for Oxfam um, in Central America, in Guatemala, and El Salvador, and those countries, and then in Haiti. Um, for a while, and then I got a job with UNICEF in East Africa in in Kenya, and so that's the I was, UN Children's UN Fund, Children's yeah. Fund. That's right. So, so you know, I was doing all that, and that was fine, um, and and sort of doing bits of journalism, and then eventually I thought, oh God, this aid work thing. I just, I, I think I I it was after maybe the. 20th or 30th article on the ventilated improved pit latrine because I was an information <laughs> officer and I right. had to write well there was so praise. much left unanswered after 25 <laughs> yeah you know, I mean I had to write on. in praise of the ventilated improved pit latrine which is a wonderful invention yeah, yeah. and I had to write articles which they were what I call Fatima lives in a village articles right. you know Fatima lives in a village <laughs> she has to walk a kilometer to go and get water and I am sorry about Fatima and how far but it just it comes to the point where you think how much more of this and can also I is do? this helping yeah is this helping because it's, helping. it's it just rolls off our backs off now. we go and all this stuff and also I thought Oh, who the hell am I? I mean, I was in my 20s and I thought, and I'm constantly, the other thing I was supposed to do was tell women what they were supposed to do, like about, I don't know, breastfeeding or this or that. What the hell did I know? I knew nothing. And I thought, well, the answer to stopping having to tell people what to do and write about latrines is if I become a journalist. Right. And then I can just observe things. I won't actually have to but tell people what to do. How do you make that leap into going to the world's danger spots? I mean, it's, ah, I, I, well, I'm not, I don't want to use the word war junkie, but I just did. Yeah, so, okay. No, well, I'm not one. Um, no, well, I was adre- living... Adrenaline? Yeah, adrenaline's a good thing. A little. Okay. Um, so I was living So I was living in Nairobi at that point, and, um, and basically there was... It was when there was a war in Uganda. This is actually the only time that I've ever been paged at an airport. Will Lindsay Hilson please come back? Because I was still working for the UN Children's okay. Fund, but I was so desperate to get to Uganda because Museveni, who's now president, has been president for however many years. This is 19... Oh, God, I can't even remember. 1982, I suppose. Um, no, later, 86. 86. He's, uh, he's taking Kampala and moving up the eastern fronts and which is fine, but I'm not there. Okay. So this is not all right. So by this point, I so want to be a journalist, and I so want to be there. You want to be on the front. You want yeah. to be where it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm in Nairobi, stuck behind. And so I thought, well, I'll just go, and I'm sure UNICEF will find something for me to do when I get there. So I just went. To, so I just sort of. You went. want to go where the action is. Yeah. So you I just left a note saying I'm off. I'm. I'll be there. I'm sure I can do something useful. Anyway, they called. They paged me. They called me back. But then I was very lucky because um, there was a, a, U, a UNICEF representative who understood. And he said, right, I've got a, a television team coming out who are doing a story about um, child soldiers. So I will attach you to this team. 
And you thought, oh, great, child soldiers, fantastic. Yeah, I did. I thought this is really interesting. And you can tell them, you know, how to breastfeed. And, I could uh, do all of that, and know, I could help them dig their latrines. Uh, anyway, so I went um, as a researcher with this team, and so then I went up the Eastern Front with um, with Museveni as a guerrilla leader, which was amazing, actually. That conversation around the campfire, I saw Winnie. Winnie, Winnie was his mistress uh, in those days. She was the first... Um, female African pilot. She was amazing. She was sex on legs. She was incredible. She was in this wonderful flying suit. She was gorgeous and so smart. And, you know, he's um, she's his worst political enemy now. It's so interesting. Um, but uh, but Museveni, so we sat around the campfire with Museveni and, you know, I learned all these things about what his plans for Uganda and what he really thought about things and so on. And so I've watched over the years as all of this has you're watching past. world leaders develop, and you're, yeah, there, you're really, there at the beginning. The beginning. Some yeah, of these people that you meet around the campfire, suddenly yeah. you can't get close to them. Because That's right, exactly. I've got a, I've got a friend. He's, he was the best man at my, at my wedding, and um, his name's David Holthouse. He, he, he was raped when he was eight. Oh, dear. And I'm not ex- disclosing anything because he's got a million listeners on, on, uh, on NPR. He's, yeah. t- he's told that story. But throughout the time that I knew him, he was this adrenaline narco journalism, uh-huh. and and he was just like he was going down to the uh, you know across the border to the narco traficantes. Oh, yeah. He later infiltrated the American skinhead movement. Oh my god! I shaved his head. I'm very proud. He's got he's got tattoos. Did he, he shave yours? No, no, no. This 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 is a death by natural causes, um, and later when it came out, and he didn't tell anyone. He kept it totally silent, mm. and then he decided he was going to kill. He found out that the guy who who uh, who'd raped him had moved just a few miles from where we oh were living, and so he secretly was planning to kill the guy. <gasps> so, and that was his story. It's called "Stalking the Boogeyman." If anyone wants to wants to look it up, oh, yeah. but re- sort of we realized looking back that he he had a death wish, not so much a death wish. He didn't care if he lived or died, right, right. because there was a traumatic event in his past. So consequently, he could throw himself into these crazy situations, mm. guns being pulled on him, you yeah. know, pretending to be a pretending to be a policeman, pretending to be a, a drug dealer. Is there it's like when I, I see I hope he pe- didn't kill the guy. No, no, his mom found the journal that he had kept when he was 7 or okay. 8 when she was clearing out the attic, literally I'd say about a week before he was going to pull it off. Okay. And oh. uh yeah, oh, it was, it was a crazy it was a crazy time. I remember driving across town with him in the we were going to the gym, and the dashboard felt, you know, the, the I was looking for a map in the glove box, and there's his gun. Oh, my God. And I'm like, I hate it when you bring that thing. I just hate <laughs> it. Like, do we have, and he's like, I said, we're going to the gym. He says, I ever tell you I was raped when I was eight? Oh, my God. I said, no, the guy lives like three miles from here. I'm going to kill him. I'm like, okay, you know, please don't do this. And then a few days later, his mom came in. But shifting back, when I see people who throw themselves in these dangerous situations, over and over again. I mean, my wife and I, we cringe on the couch going, please make it back, Lindsay. No, but I'm rarely in situations that... De- no, I'm rarely in situations that dangerous. I'm certainly I'm certainly not the bravest or the most foolish of journalists. Oh, but certainly you're the most humble. Oh, bollocks. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not... The, look, um, you, you make calculated risks, and I'm... I'm not an, a war junkie and I'm not an adrenaline junkie. Of course, there's adrenaline. It keeps you It keeps you going. Otherwise, you know, how do we get up in the morning? Of course, there's adrenaline. But um, I really, I'm, I'm very drawn to extreme situations and situations where people are going through extremes and what happens to people then, and, you know, people's stories and all that stuff. 
And I'm also, I have this thing about, you know, being where history is happening. You know, that was the thing about going to Uganda. History was happening just well, in the somebody's, next door Also, country. somebody's got to do it. Yeah, but it's not, but I mean, you know, somebody's got to dig pit latrines as well, and it's not going to be me. Um, but, <laughs> Been there. But, Did your time. Yes. But I don't. I mean, I don't do crazy, crazy things. I did more crazy things when I was younger. I think that most of us do crazier things when we're younger because yeah. you think you're bulletproof. Yeah. I mean, I can look back and I can, you know, I think of, I can think of an occasion where during the genocide in Rwanda when I came up, I'd gone out and I came up through Burundi and I crossed the border from Rwanda into the Democratic Republic of Congo after dark by myself. Always good times. Yeah. And you say, oh, God, now I kind of put my head in my head and think, oh, what, what, was, you know, I doing? what was I doing? And I would never do that kind of thing now. When, was, when I, was the last time you were terrified? The last time I was absolutely terrified. Oh, God, I can't remember, really. Um, I think I blocked that bit out. I mean, on the whole, I'm not absolutely terrified because... After, when you're in the moment. Yeah, but also, on the whole, it's... On the whole, it's not that dangerous. You can calculate it, and you can get out of the very dangerous situation. But you look let at me, what... Okay, let me tell you the last time. I can remember. Let me think of one. I've thought of one. Um, it's it's the things which you can't control. On the whole, you can control. Like, for example, you know, I was in Syria last week, and we didn't... It's very difficult to actually get to where the fighting is because we were in on the government side with visas and they won't let you go there. So it's extremely hard to, you know, quite often you're you're pushing to get to the more dangerous situation and right, because of your you can't. And you're just like, oh. oh, bloody hell, you can't get there. But no, so at the end, in August 2011, as Gaddafi fell, um, we came in with the rebels um, from the West. So we, we were driving in with the rebels and there's lots of sort of crazy shooting going on. There anyway, I was. And then we get into um, we get to the Corinthia Hotel in the centre of town, which is like a big modern hotel. And um, we're not going to stay there because we have somewhere else to stay, but we need... That's where the satellite dish is for doing the live broadcasts and so on. And also um, for s- sending our story because the internet's um, not really working, so we need the satellite. So we we get a room on the 23rd floor... And we go up and we put all our equipment up there and um, we start to edit. And um, Sarah, the producer, opens the window. It's one of those windows not supposed to be open because of air conditioning. Anyway, we open it because we want to put our little satellite dish out. Um, and so there I'm sitting editing with the editor, Graham, and suddenly three bullets straight through the window, up into the ceiling, down onto the floor. And so... Somebody sniped us in the, on the 23rd floor. Of so the, it wasn't just random gunfire coming no, through. They were aiming at... My God knows why. Anyway, so we hit the deck. Bang. Right down. So then we're all lying on the ground. So then I think, what are we going to do now? Well, you and changed scarves first, I'm guessing. No. What happened was then... So then people people heard, obviously, because it was quite loud. And so these rebels come running up the stairs. And, um, and we're just lying on the floor. And um, they opened the, the door. And I sort of didn't want to... My back, and I, I didn't want to go up like that, you know, and raise my profile in case the sniper's still outside. Right. And I'm, I'm sort of worried I want to lie flat, but it's kind of hard to edge out. So, I mean, these rebels come crawling in, and then they pull me out by the legs on my back, which is not the most elegant position, straight <laughs> into the lens of a French documentary cameraman. <laughs> oh. How humiliating is that? Well, I mean, you could have you could have played it off and be like, yes, and uh, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, anyway, so then we but then we all came out. Knees. We all came out, and then we and then we had to crawl back in and get the equipment out piece by piece, set up in the. 
corridor and finish editing the story. Did anyone go and look for the shooters? No, it was too chaotic. I just wanted to get my story out. Right, we of had course. a story yeah. to get out. Bloody we had snipers. a deadline. I'm on a deadline. We were on a deadline. We had to get the story out. And, you know, we missed the deadline. We weren't at the top of the show, but we got in for the second item, which I think is quite good. You know, we still considering. made it. Considering. Considering, under the circumstances. So when they pulled you out by your feet, where you still had the laptop <laughs> Not quite, but we pulled those those bits out afterwards, and then we edited the story and uh, and rushed down, and then I did a live broadcast, and I explained why we were late, and I, I think viewers forgave us. I think they thought it was a good excuse. Hello, I'm Eric Beck-Rubin, hardcore, out-of-control book enthusiast, inviting you to listen to a new show here on Latopia called burning books. Every three weeks, we put out a new podcast on a single book. It could be a recent debut, a classic, fiction, nonfiction, and everything in between. The idea is to explore what lies at the heart of great books, books that try to be great but don't quite make it, as well as, now and then, books that are irredeemably bad. So check out our archive shows on Latopia, and we'll look forward to having you join us for our next podcast. Burning Books, exclusively from Latopia.com. You've got 20 million viewers in a month in Channel 4. There's Do we? Like, yeah, that's what it said on the web. That must There's, be true then. Yeah, take a look on the Google machine. That's what it says. All right. Um, I mean, there's a huge amount of pressure for you to get these stories out. Has, yeah. Has it taken a toll on your personal life? Um, I think I'm quite lucky because I did this very, very sensible thing, which is that I shacked up with my cameraman. That's right. So you're still together. Yeah. But he's no longer the cameraman. Very bizarrely, he didn't want to be Lindsay Hilsom's cameraman for the rest of his life. Isn't that odd? Really? Really peculiar. So he burned out before you did? No, he just went into a different career. He now works in in security. He works in security. Okay. But he doesn't say... So he's still like... Oh, yeah, he's still on the... He's still Danger Man. Yeah, 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 he's Danger Man. He's definitely Danger Man. like that, huh? Bit of a rogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, tell me this. So you guys were in in an armored vehicle in Fallujah. Yes. When the U.S. were invading, uh, you were one of the first journalists in there. Hmm. How romantic was that? Not in the slightest. I didn't. I didn't wash for a week, and I had to. Well, I mean, washed. I mean, I did my. I would wash my hair with mineral water. Um, there was nowhere. I mean, I. I couldn't pee or anything. Very. You know, I had to wait till it was after dark, and then go around the back of somewhere. I mean, it was not very romantic. And there were six. I can't remember how many there were in the armored vehicle. Armored vehicle isn't that big. So there's like six, six guys, eight, Marines yeah. here. And then they put a plank across for me and Tim to sleep on. And then when they weren't, most of the time the armored vehicle this, is knocking down walls. So if you're, this home like, visa rocking, <laughs> don't come and knocking. Well, what they would do is that they would knock walls down and then they would get time off. And when they had time off, they would all watch South Park. Oh, really? Oh, that's what they watched. Of course, with Saddam Hussein. And the, yeah, oh, yeah, so man. they just watched South Park. So, it was, uh, so I would say that was not one of the more romantic assignments. It, it doesn't sound like a very feminine atmosphere. It wasn't either. a very feminine atmosphere. It was, it was absolutely extraordinary. I think that that was the most intense combat I've ever seen. As far as just the, yeah, the as bullets just far, are flying. Just well, you were right on the front line. We were right on the front line. And, I mean, luckily, for, you know, was with an armoured vehicle group. So I actually spent a lot of time in the armoured vehicle, occasionally poking my head out. Tim spent a lot of time you know, up on top of buildings filming the guys during the battle. But I didn't, 
Sometimes I did get out, but some of the time I didn't because I knew that if I spent a lot of time getting out, they would worry that I was going to be shot. They didn't worry about Tim because Tim's a former soldier. And so they knew that he knew, would know what to do. And if the shit hit the fan, he would be able to protect himself, whereas I wouldn't. I'm not, you know, I'm not a trained soldier. I have, you know, I have some experience... But well, you I did know pretty how well to... when the snipers came in. You were on the ground yeah, on yeah, your yeah. back no, pulling me out. I, I, know, I know how to do the basic stuff, but I'm not going, you know, I'm not a soldier. It's a totally different thing. So I figured that if I was spent too much time out, that they would not let him do the filming because uh, they would be, yeah, I'd be in the way. So I spent a lot of time in the armoured vehicle um, just looking while, was, while he filmed. How did you feel being embedded do you, did, with the with the U.S. forces? Did you feel like you were getting the story or was that just the only way? Well, I felt I was getting part of the story, just that part of the story. Shock and awe, hoorah! Yeah, just that bit. I mean, during the war in 2003, we were in Baghdad, as it were, embedded with Saddam Hussein. So I spent three months in Baghdad then. So through in the war in Iraq, I've spent time on sort of all sides, as it were. Right, right, right. And I think that's the way you have to do it, because in any war, you know, you can't see the whole picture. You can only see what you see at the time. And so with Fallujah, it was a very intense battle. And you, there was no middle way. You had to be filming and reporting from one side or the other side. I couldn't be no. embedded with the other side because they would have kidnapped me. I mean, it didn't look like much of a battle. It looked from, obviously, from the other side of the set where <clears throat> yeah. I think we have all the information. Yes. Um, it looked so one-sided at that well, time. Well, sorry, there was overwhelming firepower from the Americans, but in the unit I was with, two were killed. Oh, wow. And several were injured. So although the American firepower was overwhelming and there was no question what the outcome would be, there were insurgents. I saw 21... you still... This is uh, why we play the game. There there were 21 dead insurgents from the encounter, which I remember, which we filmed, and two dead Americans. So, you know, people were being killed on both sides. I have have another friend who's the... um, was in Rwanda during during the genocide, mm. working for Oxfam. Oh yeah, and he's still suffering from post traumatic stress mm. disorder from just having to, you know, he was. It took him a while to get out. Yeah, and how do you see these things, bodies and mm. and 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 you know, widows and orphans and and destroyed buildings and wrecked lives? How do how how do you get through that and not be emotionally damaged? Well, I think there's two things there. One is I think that you need to have, you know, some stability in your personal life and and not to be addicted to it. And I, you know... I, some people are. Oh, yes, some people definitely are, and some of my friends are. Um, I don't think I am. And I think that, you know, one of the things is I, li- I like coming home and I like pottering around my garden and I like cooking. And um, Ooh, What do you make? What's your big dish? I'm vegetarian, so, you know, I do all sorts of different things like, you know, spanaka pizza and okay. all sorts of, you know, Indian stuff and so on. I'm not the world's best cook, but I'm all right. Um, but it's the pottering aspect, which I think is particularly therapeutic. So I think that that's one thing. You have to have another life. Um, and the other thing is, you know, it's actually, it's a kind of new theory at the moment, which is called post-traumatic growth which is, says that not everybody who experiences these things or witnesses these things becomes, uh, you know, gets post-traumatic stress disorder. That what it can also do to you is you, you, you see all these terrible things, and yes, you do care and you get involved, but actually you grow as a person and you understand more and 
and you also and you appreciate your own life and you appreciate other things in life. That's a really that's a really Bird interesting song and all that stuff. That's a really appreciate. interesting point because it's like it's like two children who are from the same dysfunctional yeah. family and one of them says, "You know what? That was horrible. I'm moving on with my yeah. life." And they succeed and they have kids and they're yeah. all happy. And the other one spirals into yeah. depression and will not let it go. Yeah, exactly. We don't really look at the the other side of Yeah, the, and somebody's doing some research on it at the moment. And um, I thought it was a really when I read about it, I thought that's really Do you know what the numbers are on that? Like how no, it, I don't how I don't think any, no, I don't. I but don't that's what that's what you're claiming on this, because frankly, I don't know if I, every every time in the correspondence that we've had leading up to to mm. bringing you to the inviting you to the studio, everything has been. I just got back from Crimea. I just want to hang around, uh, hang around the house, quote unquote, yes. and do nothing. Yes. How do I know that you're not, you know? doing lines of coke off the pool table and playing, I don't know, Call of Duty and going, hoorah, the television. Why don't you just guess? I mean, look at me. What are the chances of me being able to <laughs> this, operate a computer game? This, okay. Next to bugger all. Really? Yes. How are you on the technical side of the shit. news? Really? Absolutely. You shit. just show up and do your thing. Yeah. Touch me. I really respect that. No, okay. I'm crap. Hi, this is Chris Pope. Listen to the Gary Bushell Show with The Hungry and the Hunted. This is my new single from the album Peace of Mind, and it's called Peace of Mind. The Hungry and the Hunted, brought to you by Letopia. Let's get brass tacks into, into, into Syria. It just seems so chaotic. How did we get from how did we get from the pages of Vogue, the Rose of the mm. Desert, the fetid couple of the Assads, to chemical weapons and sanctions and bloodshed and you know w- what are we what are we looking at now? Uh, One hundred and fifty thousand mm. dead and nine pe- nine million people leaving their homes. What you just got back from homes, was it? Yeah, you? I was in homes. Yeah. What are 9 million people leaving their homes, 2.5 million refugees? What does that look like on the ground? Well, in Damascus, it looks strangely and eerily normal. And that's what's so weird about it, because Syria is very, you know, divided. So in in the center of Damascus, you know, apart from the sound of mortars going overhead, um, you know, it's kind of quite normal. You can go to the mall. Yeah, well, they're equivalent of the mall, which is which is the old city. Mind you, I did go to the mall, the equivalent of the old, the old city, which is the equivalent of the mall in November. And um, I went, I wanted to buy some tiles, so I went to buy some tiles, and then we heard a very loud noise when I was buying tiles. When, when was this? I'm this sorry. This was in November. Okay. All and right. then, so I was buying. Still. I was buying tiles, and then we heard this noise, and we thought, oh, we better go and have a look. So we went and had a look, and a mortar had come in just about a hundred yards from where we were buying tiles. And so, if we'd been walking through the square in front of the mosque. Uh, 15 minutes later, sorry, earlier than when we had, we might have been taken out by that mortar. Well, this is the thing. You you, you say that, well, you manage risk and you know that you can yeah, get well, in and a, there's a kind of, there's, you look what at, can you do? Well, you look you at Marie do. Colvin. She was, yeah. you know, and that's a tragic story. She was in, she thought she could get out. She had good people around her and it was, a, I mean, was that a yeah. random shell? It was random, but she didn't think she, I spoke to her the night before and she, um, I said, what's your exit strategy? And she said, I don't have one. Really? Yeah. So she she knew that that was, that was a level of danger. That was an extraordinary level of danger. And, that, and that's example. I mean, I had, I had seen her the week before, and we had all had supper, and I said, I'm not going. It's too dangerous, and I don't think you should. I didn't say I don't think you should go because I can't say that to Marie. But I said, I won't go because it's too dangerous. There were four of us 
having dinner, all very experienced um, correspondents, and three of us would not go in because it was too dangerous, and one went in and she didn't come back. So sometimes some things are too dangerous. You couldn't have told her not to go. No, you couldn't tell Marie what to do. I mean, Marie did what Marie, Marie would do what she wanted to do, but she knew that the rest of us thought it was too dangerous. And I, we all said, we think it's too dangerous. And she said, anyway, it's what we do. Did she thrive on the ad- adrenaline? Yeah, she did. Did she have a, I mean, did she have the stability of the home life that keeps you going? No. So she was out there for the for the rush in, in, in ways that... Partly. I think she was were. also really committed to what we do. And she really believed in, in what we do. She really believed in reporting. And if you read her last dispatch... Um, before she was killed, the widow's basement, about the 300 widows and children huddling in this basement in Homs um, under mortar fire and artillery and all the rest of it. I mean, it's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary dispatch. But what is so strange, I went back to Homs, I went to Babarama. So here we are, this is where your your friend, your colleague... Yeah was killed and she knew that she was in a dangerous situation. Yeah, she knew she was in a And last week, there you are. Yeah, I went, I went back to Bamaraba, to Bamaraba, which was the place where she was killed. I wanted to go to where she was killed. I mean, she was a very close friend. Um, and now it's, I mean, basically, um, there's not very many people there. They've all fled. I mean, the, the rebels have been pushed into one tiny part of Homs, old Homs. It's just in the centre. Uh, and basically, they've lost in Homs. The government forces have won. Um, at least for the moment. And, um, you know, there's pretty terrible damage and wreckage. We came across, it was so strange, we came across this woman with her family, like six kids who were all planting vegetables um, just on a roadside in the middle of, in amongst all these, uh, these burned-out buildings. Yeah, these were kids. And the woman, her, her husband had gone missing. One kid had, had been killed. And they were just trying to survive, so they had come back. They were sta- their house was completely ruined, so they were saying somebody else's house. And you would see these are the strange things, you know, these very eerie, empty streets and these... But it's almost, it's, it's just the tragedy there mm. almost is there's so much hope in planting vegetables... Yes. In a war zone, because you're not going to see the fruits of that labor but, for I mean, months. Yeah, no, but they, but I mean, I guess that they feel that in Homs now, that basically it's it's decided, at least for the moment, the government has won. Um, that doesn't mean the government will have won in two years' time or five years' time, but now it has. Well, this is what sort of mystifies me about the situation in that when, and this is just from a total kind of novice standpoint, is there was the... The Arab Spring in Syria mm. looks like they did some some kids did some graffiti yeah. on a wall. That's right. Then they tried to arrest the kids, and then or they did arrest they the didn't. kids, and then the mob gathered, and then the troops, the government mm. troops, just fired on the mob, and that like they increased their resolve, and then it became this, and then boom, 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 and suddenly you have this rebel forces that got just about to Aleppo, just about into Damascus. It looked like Assad mm. was going to fall. And at that point, I think everyone was like, eh, it's 3-0 and there's five minutes left. Mm. Like, And, we, how, and everybody, turned, everybody turned away. That was in t- 2012. What, ha- what happened? Well, I think a number of different things happened. The first thing that happened was Iran and Russia weighed in very much on Assad's side. So you weighed got, in means what? Well, sending weapons. Well, not the, the Russians were arming Assad. Well, what are the logistics of that? 
the logistics are that the Russians have um, a, uh, they have, there's a port at Tartus and the Russian ships can come in there. Now there were Russian. What the Russians would say is that you know they had um, agreements for you know arms uh, sales to Syria, which, and they did not stop those agreements. Okay. But then you have the Iranians sent in. They send weapons. They send. Um, uh, members of the Quds Force, which is a, a military force, and then Hezbollah, which is a Shia force uh, based in Lebanon, um, they went in as well. And I think that particularly Hezbollah and the Iranians turned the tide in Assad's favour. Now, at the same time as that was going on... But the tide was massive at yeah, that point. But then the, um, so you've, that's the first thing that happens. The first thing that happens is that powerful forces go in on the side of Assad with more weapons and more troops. And troops. And better trained. And, motivated, and these troops are motivated. From, these troops are from Lebanon, Lebanon and uh, Iran. Lebanon and Iran. Okay, so that, and then on the other side, the rebels fracture even more than they are because they were already very fractured. I don't know how many rebel groups there are in well, Syria now. Maybe two thousand people says, say. The, what I could pull off off, yeah. off the Google machine is a thousand rebel groups at least. Com- commanding an estimated 100,000 yeah. uh, so, know The UN says both sides has committed war crimes. It seems to me like when when it comes to who, does, who do you support or who's got the... It, it's like the Grand National. You're looking at certain groups, that 30 to 1 odds. Yeah. One. Who's, who's the front runner for one of these groups, not only to come out ahead, but to actually govern well? Yeah, well, that's... Yeah, I mean, you're, you're several steps... You're so several steps ahead there in the sense that so these groups fractured and then, you know, Western countries, particularly Americans, they were sort of leery of getting involved. And then you get the jihadi element coming in very, very strongly. So then you've got these groups which are backed to some extent by Saudi Arabia and um, and Qatar. But which are jihadi, you know, at least one of them allied to al-Qaeda. And so they have taken advantage of this situation. And what they're trying to do is to create a caliphate across part of Syria and part of Iraq. But I think that the other thing which is really important to understand is that Assad said from the beginning, our enemies are jihadis. They will come back and they will fight you in Britain, in America, in France and so on. But he contributed to that on purpose because he knew that the West would not support the rebels if they were primarily allied to al-Qaeda. So one of the first things he did was release a lot of al-Qaeda-style militants from prison okay. because he knew that they would then start fighting him. Right. They say, and I he can't... He released his own opposition. Yes, he released his own opposition, the extremists. Calculated. He released the extremists and locked up the moderates. Right. To make sure that the moderate opposition would not be effective and the extremist opposition would be effective. And then... It's not a bad plan. It, it, well, it's worked, hasn't it? Mm. And then what um, many reports suggest, and I can't prove this, but many, because you need to do more analysis, is that where the, the moderate opposition is frequently bombed from the air by Assad's forces... But the extremists, al-Nusra Front, ISIS, these are the jihadi groups which are allied to al-Qaeda, um, they tend not to be bombed from the air. So he is not attacking them in the same way as he is attacking the moderates. So he is. So what he said, this is a jihadi extremist al-Qaeda opposition that you will not want to support. He made that a self-fulfilling prophecy, 
sure enough, that's exactly what's happened. So it's 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 genius. I it's mean, genius. He's like a Bond villain now. He is. So I look at you know, in in the states, there's very. I don't know, it seems like there's very little awareness of what's going mm. on. Or also there's there's so many sort of domestic problems. But the U.S. Has, has a huge amount of weight that occasionally likes to throw around. And there were a lot of hawks saying, oh, yeah, we got to go in mm. and we got to invade. But it became, can we solve this problem? As a U.S. citizen, can we solve this problem from an airplane? Mm. Mm, no. What what needs to happen? Money is obviously getting to al-Qaeda, to... Yeah. To jihadi groups, Look, what should what should the West do? In, you, yeah, in your yeah, no, I in knew you were going to ask that. So in my humble opinion, in my humble opinion, I find this incredibly difficult because it's you know it's like the Irish hitchhiker. How do I get to Dublin? Well, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. You know, that's that's how it is. You know, so at this point, I find it extremely difficult to know what the West should do because I do. You can arm the opposition. And they have all these fancy ideas of, you know, okay, so we're going to give them surface-to-air um, missiles, but they, you can only fire them five times and then they stop working. And if you move them into somebody else's hands, they stop working through this technology and say, oh, give me a break. You know, that what, kind of... fingerprint recognition yes, all that kind of fire missiles? Yeah, and all They're this, giving them the highest tech possible. Yeah, yeah. And also, but it's insane because anyway, those guys are so brilliant. You know that they'll I reverse... I can't even get that in Colorado. I know, but you know that anyway, those guys will reverse engineer it. I mean, I just don't believe for a minute that that's going to work. Okay, they will okay. work out how to get around that. Um I don't think that you can guarantee that weapons won't get into the hands of the Al-Qaeda people. And I think that at this point, you know, and the rest of the opposition is weak and divided. Um, I find it very difficult to know what you so, It seems just totally fractioned. It, it's, it's a mess. It's so a huge on the, mess. So on the ground, the, we're talking about the people. Yes. Would they happily accept a caliphate? No. No, I don't think that they As would. opposed to what they have now, at least they get buildings and schools well, you know, and well, it's a, running you, water. I mean, there is, at the moment, the, the jihadis uh, are in control in a place called Raqqa, which, of course, I haven't been to. And my journalistic colleagues who have been there have been kidnapped, so they're, they're under unpleasant circumstances. And, you know, people are getting, uh, you know, whipped and stoned for smoking or adultery and so on. And this is not the kind of uh, world that most Syrians want to live in. This is not the kind of Islam that they're used to. There is sort of, uh, in in many Islamic charities, for instance, mm. they're like, yeah, we'll build the roads and we'll build the school, mm. we'll build the hospital. But mm. there's a whole string of conditions. And conditions, that's right. And is that something that could basically my, my question is mm. are we creating another mujahideen yeah. in the way that we did in Afghanistan in the sense that like well, oh we'll fight the Russians in this yeah. weird proxy war yeah. and then 20 years so later it'll come, come back and well I think that that's what that's why the Americans and the Europeans are not arming these people in the same way as they armed the mujahideen because they're very well aware of that issue so although there are some fighters who are being trained by the Americans in Jordan and going uh, back into fight um, they're in small numbers and they're very much the kind of what we call moderate ones. And there's not a big move to arm these rebels because of the fear of exactly that happening as happened in Afghanistan. And they really put the brakes on the Saudis as well, on how much the Saudis can fund these people. So we're, we're kind of stuck. I think what you're going to get in Syria is a stalemate. And I think that the government forces will retake most of the big cities, um, including Aleppo, which will be very bloody and very horrible. And I think that you will get um, rebel forces of various kinds 
controlling bits of territory in between and you will get people living as refugees so for this is going to be it, it's sometimes it just seems like a I don't know if you uh, not a consp- some kind of global conspiracy just to keep this kind of mid-level conflict so that mm. so nations don't become masters of their own destiny you know you take the if you by destabilizing Iraq then the you know the government the population mm. can't get their hands on the oil and use it to improve their lot and in Syria, there's. It seems like now it's just like you said. It's going to devolve into just sort of this. I don't think that's it's a conspiracy because I don't think anybody has conspired to make it like that. I think it's a cock up. I think it's it's <laughs> never just never subscribe to conspiracy. What you can do incompetence. Yeah, exactly. It's it's because nobody quite knew what to do and nobody quite did it and everybody did it and and you know you can't just because there's a problem doesn't mean there's a solution. You know, it, I'm not sure that Western intervention. I mean, Western intervention would have changed the course of the war. Whether it would have made things better, I don't know. I mean, you look back to Libya. But what's the metric? Yeah, well, I don't know what the metric is because, I mean, you look back to Libya, for example. There's no question that Western intervention, the NATO air raids, changed the course of the war. Um, I think that if there hadn't been for that uh, NATO intervention, I think that Gaddafi would have swept into Benghazi. I think he would have killed a lot of people. And I think that he would probably, or he or his sons, would be in power today. Now, this would not be a good thing. They were a very, very brutal, vile dictatorship. However, so what happened was... She's got a book called Sandstorm, uh, yes. all about the... Libya in the Time of Revolution, I highly recommend Fantastic it. read. Check it out on Amazon. <laughs> Thank you, dear. Um, but, you know, so what happened was, you know, there was an overthrow of Gaddafi, helped by the West. And now you have... Um, a situation of near anarchy in Libya. Oh, well, we love helping is... overthrow people. Yeah. We're good at that. Exactly. If, if there's a problem we can solve next. from an airplane, yeah. but the, we're not so good at that part. Yeah, you know? exactly. Although, you know, that we do get the money grab. We got Halliburton coming in. We got the contractor. Well, that's right. But then on the other hand, you say that and you're right. But then what? You're going to go in and recolonize Libya? You're going to run it? America's going to run it? Not very well. Well, you can't run it anyway because you can't have foreigners coming in and running somebody else's country. It doesn't work. It was called colonialism. Yeah, they got rid of that. Yeah, yeah. The sun used to never used to set on on this empire. Now it it never really rises. Do you feel that covering these stories helps in some small way? Going into these hot spots and reporting from the ground amid the widows and orphans and crumbling buildings does that help increase awareness, or are you back to Fatima lives twelve miles away from? Look, I don't believe that what I do changes policy or, you know, I don't believe in a direct thing that, I you know, I say, I I go to a situation, I show how horrible it is, therefore somebody comes up with a solution. I, I don't think so. But I, ca- I do believe that knowledge is better than ignorance. And I think that, you know, the population, we as citizens have to make decisions. We have to say what we want our governments to do. Do we want our governments to intervene or not intervene? I don't necessarily know what the right thing to do is, but I do believe that if citizens have to make those decisions, it's better that they make it from a position of knowledge than ignorance. And I am hopefully part of the process of providing information so that people can get knowledge. And that's all I can believe in. And it's it's slight it's not very idealistic. It's it's all No, the job description says objectivity. Yeah. But you're a you're a human being. You sure. you feel when you go when you go to a place like Homs, what is your emotional reaction? Well, it it depends. Obviously, you know, you come across 
you know, things stick in your mind and you, you, you come across... What sticks in your mind from Holmes, this recent trip? Oh, those kids planting things. And a guy we met who... A guy who was a bicycle repairman who had 10 customers a day when things were good and now just has two. And he said... He was so sweet when he said... Cause he said, it's so terrible living amongst all these empty buildings. He said, our neighbours, I used to think that our neighbours were like brothers and we don't know where they've gone and I miss them. And there was just something oh. so touching to me about that. Yeah. And he was just, he was repairing a bicycle of this little boy and he little boy cycled off through all these bombed out buildings. So it's stuff like that that, that, you, that you remember. And, yeah, you are a human being, and obviously, and you have to tell the human story, but I don't believe in, you know, some journalists are very kind of weepy journalists. I'm not a weepy journalist. I don't believe, I, in the end, I don't think that my emotion is really terribly important except to me. I think that the, the emotion of the people I'm reporting on is, is significant. Oh, but we're not, we're not, you're not in the field here. You're, you're in our studio. Your, your emotional state is very important to us. Yeah, I'm sure. You go out there and you, t you cover some pretty in intense situations. No, but what situations. I'm trying to say is that I think in the reporting, it's about being objective. I think that one has, you know, you have to, you have to try and step back a bit in order to, you know, because if all your reporting is very emotional and you're just pulled this way and that way by all sorts of different emotions, then you're not able to, to ask the hard questions of the authorities and so on that you need to do. And so you... You've got to have a pretty good shield yeah. so that you can... Because if someone untrained goes in and sees all the horror and the misery, they yeah. can't look past it to find out what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that I've personally always admired mm. about your broadcasts is I feel like there's all this chaos going on, but you're there with your with your, your dashing scar and able to report on that one one last uh one last question because you're the international news editor um what is the difference between news and novelty news and novelty what an interesting question well i suppose novel novelty is just the next next thing isn't it and in a sense okay maybe i would say the difference between news and novelty we saw it three weeks ago which was the difference between crimea and the plane that went missing. As far as I was concerned, the plane that went missing was novelty. There was a lot of reporting on it to no effect because there was no information. CNN spent a month mocking yeah. up the studio and how it just to yeah. turn it into For this. For what? Because we, we didn't know. I mean, hopefully information will come out. Hopefully they will find the black box. Hopefully in the fullness of time we will be able to discover what happened to this plane, which is important. I'm not saying it's not important. But the amount of time and energy which was spent on saying nothing about that because there was no information, there was that no, was the story. There was no news. There was no news. That was novelty. We lost a plane and that's it until yeah. they find it. Yeah, exactly. Whereas what was happening in Crimea, which, where I was, obviously where I am is where it's important. Um, but what was happening <laughs> in Crimea was, um, you know, the annexation of a, a part of Ukraine by Russia, um, a change in the whole geostrategic balance between Russia and Europe and people in Crimea, some very enthusiastic about going back to Russia, they're, they're part of the world becoming Russian again, others being very scared about it. All of, and, and the sense that we were were back in a, in a Cold War type situation, this to me was news. This was something new, important, dangerous happening. Borders shifting. Borders shifting. All of that. That's right. The tectonic of plates of political exactly. action moving. And the plane, that was just novelty. So that's how I would see the difference. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Lindsay, for joining us. It has been a consummate pleasure. A pleasure for me. 